And what's important for us is that China is not only repressing its own people in, in a brutal and sophisticated way with this perfection of a, an Orwellian technological surveillance state, technologically enabled surveillance state, not only with a campaign of cultural genocide in Xinjiang, where over a million people are in concentration camps, and, and Xi Jinping said recently, hey, I'm going to build some additions onto those concentration camps, and then said, uh, and, and, then, and then said, it's good. This is good for the people. They really like being re-educated. It's worth noting that Uyghur birth rates are down uh, about 60% uh, since this campaign uh, against them. So this is of concern, especially as now that repression is extended into Hong Kong with the, the national security law. But what should be troubling to all of us, to the whole free world, is that China is promoting this authoritarian mercantilist system at our expense. And it's doing so through a very sophisticated campaign, a campaign that I describe in the book as co-option, coercion, and concealment. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. With us today, Lieutenant General retired H.R. McMaster. H.R. McMaster has, is, has a distinguished 34-year career with the United States military in many capacities, but he also ended his career as National Security Advisor for President Donald Trump. And since his retirement, he's kept himself busy by writing what I consider to be an extraordinarily important book called Battleground, subtitled The Fight to Defend the Free World. And first of all, I wanna thank you for spending some time with us. I would like to talk about some of the big themes in your book and maybe get a little more specific because your book does get quite specific. My offhand review of this book is simple. You do a brilliant job in blending your personal experiences your in-depth knowledge of history, both American history and international history, and your experiences, I'll use the term battlefields of the world, and you're sharing that information with us. My first question is a very Big Ten question. Who do you hope reads this book, and why did you write it? Well, th thank, thank you so much. You know, as maybe in a predictable manner, after retiring from the Army in 34 years, I made a mission statement for myself. <laughs> and I, what I wanted to do was contribute to a deeper and more full understanding of the most crucial challenges to our future, to our to peace and our security and, and our prosperity. And, and, uh, and so that was what drove the book. I hope that all Americans read it, not just for book sales, but because uh, because I think I think it's going to take the American people to demand a better foreign policy. I mean, we we have this great gift of of living in a democracy in which we all have a say in how we're governed, and that carries over to our foreign policy as well. And 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 Alan, as you know, as I describe in the book, a really lack of strategic competence that, that underpins to underpin our foreign policy, at least since the end of the Cold War. You have criticisms and some praise for Democrat and Republican presidents in your book. 
And you, one of the terms that is used that you call a cultural or a narcissistic um, uh, attitude that many of our presidents as well as our foreign policy establishment have towards countries that we deal with on the world stage. What do you mean by, I think it was Hans Morgenthal who came up with the term of narcissistic arrogance. Um, can you describe what that is? Because it, it does pop up several times in the book. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alan. It, it, it really is our tendency to define the world only in relation to us. And, and that's flawed, obviously, because it's self-referential, but it doesn't acknowledge, this approach doesn't acknowledge the agency, the influence, the authorship over the future that others have. And therefore, our, our strategies and our policies tend, tend, tend toward wishful thinking and optimism bias. And, uh, and they, don't, they, they don't recognize that, that uh, foreign policy and, and, and especially competitions in, in war are interactive. And, uh, and, and so what I argue for in the book is, is strategic empathy, strategic empathy to try to view the most crucial challenges to our future, to our, to our security, uh, to our prosperity from the perspective of the other and to pay particular attention to the emotions and ideology and aspiration that, that, that drive and constrain the other. Because we oftentimes, because due to this, this narcissistic approach to, to foreign policy, we, we tend to believe that either that our decisions, uh, whether these are our decisions to act uh, or to disengage, uh, are decisive to achieving favorable outcomes when in fact the future course of events depends not just on what we do, but, but on what especially rivals and adversaries and, and enemies choose to do. We have, uh, and it's interesting, in poll after poll, when you ask the American people, which is the greatest threat, foreign policy threat to America, China tops the list. And um, the virus, I'm sure, has helped that, but it was true even before the virus struck. And you see China as a real threat to the United States. And can you describe why you think that? And what do you see as should be our response to that threat? Great. Thank you, Alan. In, in, in the book, what I try to do is I try to tell the story of, of how the, the past produced the present as the first way of projecting into the future. And, and in connection with the Chinese Communist Party, strategic narcissism resulted in an assumption, an assumption that China, having been welcomed into the international order, would play by the rules and as it prospered, would, would liberalize its economy and ultimately liberalize its form of governance. Now, it's quite clear, and it has been for some time, that the opposite is the case. And, 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 and China will not become what Bob Zelig hoped it would become, a responsible stakeholder in the international system. So what China is, is driven by, what I describe in the book, are, are the emotion of fear, primarily fear of losing its exclusive grip on power. This is the, the Chinese Communist Party leadership. And also aspiration. Aspiration for China to return to national greatness, to take in Xi Jinping's word, words, center stage in the world. 
And what's important for us is that China is not only repressing its own people in, in a brutal and sophisticated way with this perfection of a, an Orwellian technological surveillance state, technologically enabled surveillance state, not only with a campaign of cultural genocide in Xinjiang, where over a million people are in concentration camps, and, and Xi Jinping said recently, hey, I'm going to build some additions onto those concentration camps, and then said, uh, and, and, then, and then said, it's good. This is good for the people. They really like being re-educated. It's worth noting that Uyghur birth rates are down uh, about 60% uh, since this campaign uh, against them. So this is of concern, especially as now that repression is extended into Hong Kong with the, the national security law. But what should be troubling to all of us, to the whole free world, is that China is promoting this authoritarian mercantilist system at our expense. And it's doing so through a very sophisticated campaign, a campaign that I describe in the book as co-option, coercion, and concealment. And, and within that campaign are several strategies at work that cut against our interests and our, our future security and, and, and our prosperity. This includes military civil fusion, where China is extracting as much sensitive and disruptive technologies as it can and applying them through its so-called private companies, which have to act as an arm of the party and its, and its national champions, its, its state-owned enterprises, to the People's Liberation Army, such that the People's Liberation Army, which includes their Navy and Air Force as well, uh, could overmatch us in future conflict. And in the meantime, can intimidate us and push us out of the Indo-Pacific region and challenge us eventually glo globally. The other strategy is, is called Made in China 2025. And this is the effort for China to dominate advanced manufacturing and for the United States really to be relegated to maybe providing them with some raw materials. But China would dominate the future, uh, the future global economy. Would dominate it from, in, from a manufacturing perspective, as I mentioned, but also would dominate uh, global supply and logistics chains, as well as communications networks. Uh, and then, and then uh, finally, the, the, the third of these strategies is One Belt, One Road, where they cr are creating servile relationships by indebting countries, mainly corrupt countries uh, who are willing to take some payoffs to, to make these really bad deals. And then, then oftentimes trade, trading debt for equity so they can take over critical infrastructure. Or just creating, again, this, this, this relationship that forces those countries to support China's foreign policy. And so if China succeeds, I mean, it's quite clear, uh, Alan, that, that the world will be less free, less prosperous, and less safe. Do you, uh, do you believe that American policymakers understand the problems and the challenges that you just presented? Yes, Alan. I think this was the biggest achievement of the Trump administration. I was proud to be part of this assessment. Uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity to convene what's called the Principles Committee of the National Security Council quite early, so very soon after I, 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 you know, I came into the White House as National Security Advisor quite unexpectedly toward the end of February. This, I think, was in early March. And we, we put into place a, a new type of meeting for the National Security Council and for the Principles Committee, which was called a framing session a principal small group framing said we would just frame complex challenges and apply design thinking to these challenges. And, and in this meeting, I, I read a few passages from previous policies on China and just made, and just made the observation that we're about to enact uh, the, the largest shift in U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, a shift in policy that was, that was long overdue. 
And I think that shift in approach from, and these labels I know are only of, of limited utility, but of cooperation and engagement toward China to an approach of competing, recognizing that we had to compete to advance and protect our interests that were under assault by the Chinese Communist Party uh, was, was an immensely significant shift. And it's a shift now, I think, Alan, that has a very high degree of bipartisan support as well. One of the ways that China, and you just mentioned it, one of the ways that China gathers this information, tech, technological information, is by sending thousands of students to the United States. They also set up something called the Confucian Institute right, right. And, or Confucius Institute. Right. And um, the Trump administration took some action on those institutes. Can you just give us an overview of how, I think you, I think you're the one who quotes General Kellogg on his assessment on how much the billions of dollars that China has actually, let's say, stolen or borrowed from us through on the technology side and how dangerous that is to our country. Right, right. Yeah, he, uh, this is the former head of the National Security uh, Agency he said, you know, it's the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. Right. And and so that so that to to maintain this or to gain this technical technological advantage over us, China is engaged in a sustained campaign of industrial espionage. That includes, as you mentioned, infiltrating People's Liberation Army scientists, for example, into U.S. government-funded research programs, oftentimes at universities or or other research facilities. And uh, and and there, there there is a systematic program, Alan, where they they come and, and get as much technology as they can, then they go back to a debriefing center that aims not only to understand this technology uh, and and to extract it from our research efforts, but then to apply it, to apply it either to gaining a dominant position in the emerging data-based global economy, or to gain a a, a, a preponderant advantage militarily. Uh, these, so uh, that's one element of the of the campaign of industrial espionage. Another is a sustained effort at at uh, at, at cyber enabled espionage, and this is carried out by a hacking entity called APT10. And in December of 2018, this is good reading actually. Uh, the Department of Justice, along with 12 other countries, uh, released a, a number of indictments and sanctions, and now sanctions against. Uh, against APT10, it was a, it was a very well integrated multinational effort, and so that's that's another aspect of, of this campaign of industrial espionage. Another aspect is 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 inviting U.S. companies in, luring them into China with uh, with the promise of of profits based on access to the Chinese market, um, and and then and then requiring those companies to transfer their know-how and their sensitive technologies and and intellectual property. This is very short-sighted uh, by the companies who've done it because oftentimes what happens is China extracts that technology, replicates it in a Chinese company, produces those goods at an artificially low price because of the subsidies from the party and the state-directed state economy, and then drives that company out of business from a global perspective. I mean, this is why there used to be, I think the number's 32 solar panel manufacturers in the United States, and there are only two left, Alan, because... Uh, because of that, uh, you can say the same with high-density batteries and 
and, uh, and, and many other technologies. That, drug companies. That, 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 that drug, drug companies, right? Pharmaceuticals, about 80% uh, of our, our, our pharmaceuticals have an element of the supply chain that runs, that runs through China. So it, this, requires, this requires a concerted effort, Alan, a defensive measures on our part, but, but, also, but also doubling down on our efforts to maintain our differential advantages. You also mentioned uh, the Confucius Institutes, uh, which, are, which are a particularly pernicious uh, form of, uh, of, uh, you know, of advancing an orthodoxy, an orthodoxy that is, uh, th that is sympathetic to the Chinese Communist Party and is disparaging uh, to, to Western democracies. Uh, there's also an organization called the Chinese Students and Scholars Association, whose job it is to keep tabs on Chinese students and, and to make sure that they don't have the temerity to utter a critical word uh, about, about uh, the Chinese Communist Party. And, uh, and so I think at a minimum, what universities have to do is, is they have to put in place some, some due diligence to, to, screen, uh, to screen those who are doing research in their, in their facilities. U.S. companies have to do the same thing. We don't want to turn universities into the FBI, right? Let the FBI do what the FBI does. But there has to be some degree of, of, of due diligence. Uh, and then also what universities can definitely do is they can say that they will not tolerate the intimidation of their own students. So Ch Chinese students who come to the United States should be able to enjoy the academic freedoms that, that, are, that are essential uh, to higher education in, in this country. So there, there's a lot to do, Alan. The, the main theme uh, in the book is to, is to re-enter arenas of competition that we vacated based on strategic narcissism and the flawed assumptions associated with it. You, you talk about in the book that the United States should not sit on the sidelines when there are human rights violations, abuses taking place overseas. China, once again, um, tops the list of a country that is trying to re-educate millions and millions of people and I use that term in quotation marks. Uh, Hong Kong, uh, the not only dampening down, but destruction of a democratic society. Uh, what is it that the United States should be doing that it isn't doing in terms of protesting and trying to get China in this case, but there are other countries that are doing the same um, to, in fact, uh, stand up for American values of freedom, was freedom of religion, freedom of speech, et cetera. Right. Well, the, the, I, the, the, uh, the Trump administration has done quite a bit in, in recent months uh, and the last year and a half, I think, uh, in terms of sanctioning companies, Chinese companies who have a hand in, in constructing and, and uh, monitoring and, and uh, running these concentration camps in Xinjiang, for example, uh, I think I think recognizing that, that that Hong Kong has lost its special status and and then imposing the economic costs on 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 uh, on China is is wholly appropriate uh, as well. Uh, I think that it's very important now for us not to be complicit in in the across the private sector in strengthening the Chinese Communist Party and advancing its strategies, which are designed. Uh, to, to really to challenge us and ultimately you know, deny us uh, the, the future that we want uh, for, for, for our children in, in our free and open societies, right, our grandchildren. And so that means financing uh, China's military buildup. I mean, it's really unconscionable 
that Chinese companies are listed on U.S. exchanges, and then the U.S. investors are funding really is the development of the People's Liberation Army. Chinese companies, as you know, when they list on U.S. exchanges, don't have to meet the transparency standards. They just refuse to do so. They're supposed to. So I think just enforcing standards such that we treat China like any other country or any other human rights violator, right? And and uh, and so these sanctions are very important. But I'd like to see some other measures taken. Alan, I think there should be an international agreement among our free and open societies, our democratic societies, that we will abide, our companies will abide by local laws, but uh, they will not abide by local laws if they violate the UN Declaration on Human Rights, for example. And then, then what, what our companies will, can say, hey, listen, I, or, or maybe we should pass a U.S. law. There's a, there's a law being drafted called the Strategic Act on the Hill right now, which I, I hope has this provision in it. I think it does, which will require U.S. companies to, you know, to, to, uh, to, to not violate our, our values, essentially. But that should be a multinational agreement. Oftentimes, U.S. companies will say, well, you know, if, if I give up market share in China, a German company or a Japanese company, those, those take my market share. I think we have to now recognize that the free world has to impose costs on China or the Chinese Communist Party for, for its behavior. The other measure might sound kind of counterintuitive, Alan, but I, I think that Chinese employees of U.S. companies who are subjected to the coercive power of the Chinese Communist Party, right? Think about companies that, that, that uh, hold sensitive data or, or developing new technologies. Uh, I think that we ought to grant them visas to come work in the United States and just encourage, you know, onshoring of, of more of these sensitive um, uh, development of technologies, for example, uh, or or, uh, or or helping them helping them get out get out of the country. I I, I recall in the book I, I write about uh, when George H. W. Bush was confronted with the Tiananmen Square massacre. He said to all Chinese students in the United States, "Hey, if you want to if you want a green card, you can have it." Fifty-eight thousand took him up on it. And just like other previous waves of immigrants who were escaping oppression, they became our most productive citizens, many of our, our most productive citizens, the most successful entrepreneurs and, and scientists and doctors. And so you know, I, I, just, I just think you know, a, a policy like that, uh, and, and I think the, the UK's example on, on offering uh, visas for, for Hong Kong uh, residents, I mean, I think that was, a, that, that was also a, a, very, a very positive measure. But overall, Alan, I, I, the, the title of the um, of the chapter on on what to do about China is called you know, "Turning Weakness into Strength." We ought to take a look. What is the Chinese Communist Party? What do they think is is a, is a weakness for them, a vulnerability for them? Well, freedom of speech, free, freedom of the press, rule of law. I mean, what if the Chinese people actually had the you know, had, had an idea that maybe they ought to have a say in how they're governed, right? So, so all the things that the Chinese Communist Party views as weakness. That's our comparative advantage. Now, we have issues in all these areas in our own society these days, right? So, so I argue for a bit of introspection to strengthen the pillars of our democratic society and, and free market economic system, uh, as well as, as those of like-minded countries. One of the points that you just made in this interview, which you make in the book, is the tendency on the part of our policymakers to look at the world only through our ideological eyes. And when the Obama administration went into this JCPOA 
this um, deal with Iran, the nuclear deal, um, you quote Ben Rhodes as saying, if we permit them, if we usher them into the international community, it will temper their radicalism, they will become good citizens of the international community. Well, that hasn't happened, as we all know. Can you give your assessment of the Iran nuclear deal? Right, well, I would call it, I would call it a political disaster masquerading as a diplomatic triumph for the reason you just stated. This is, this is, a, this is a, a, an extreme example of strategic narcissism. And what I write about Iran and battlegrounds is, this, is our tendency to overlook the very nature of the regime now, <laughs> to expect them to change, like the Grinch right before Christmas, right? Their hearts would get two sizes bigger. They would, you know, they would stop their 40-year-old proxy war against us. Okay, that's, that's not gonna happen. And then also we, we, we divorce the latest decision on Iran from this record of this four decade long proxy war. And, and, and what I describe in the book is really our approach toward Iran since 1979 has been a policy of conciliation with them. Every time there's a shift in the government, a shift in circumstance, we think, okay, now's the time when if we welcome Iran, they'll change their behavior. They're not going to do it, Alan. The, you know, the, this, there was a, you know, there was a competition for a time in, in Iran, as, as you know, between the, the revolutionaries and the Republicans, right? Or the hardliners and the reformers. Hey, the, the revolutionaries won, they won. And, and sometimes they put forward a shop window, you know, whether it's Hatami or Rouhani or Zarif. But behind that is the Supreme Leader, the Guardian Council and the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. All the JCPOA did is probably give them cover to continue their programs uh, in a clandestine manner, while allowing them to reap tremendous economic benefits, a huge payoff up front, but then a relaxation of sanctions from which they profited handsomely in just that one year. And where did they apply those profits? Back to the proxy war to intensify it against the great Satan, the United States, the little Satan, Israel, and the Arab monarchies. And what they had succeeded in doing in this period of time is building this, this, establishing this land bridge really to the, to the Mediterranean uh, with the design of, of putting a proxy army on the border of Israel. So the, the, the JCPOA empowered Iran across the Middle East uh, and, and allowed them to pursue their hegemonic designs. The Trump administration policy of, of reimposing sanctions on Iran, then eventually getting out of the JCPOA, that's the right approach now, is to force the regime to make a choice, right? You can be a responsible nation. You can then reap the benefits, but you can't reap the benefits of being a responsible nation when you're essentially a state sponsor of terrorism who is perpetuating a sectarian civil war across the Middle East that is keeping not only the Arab world perpetually weak and threatening Israel, but is keeping these jihadist terrorist organizations on life support also, right? Because they can portray themselves as patrons and protectors of Sunni Muslim communities who fear complete evisceration at the hands of, of Iran's proxies. You talk about the need for the United States to rebuild its alliance with like-minded countries, free world. Can you explain what steps you would like to see a whether this administration or a future administration take to rebuild 
these alliances? Right. Well, I, I think I think we first of all have to have to um, make clear our resolve to remain engaged, to remain engaged in the key areas of the world that have, I think, I think resulted in the prevention of great power conflict for over seventy-five years now. And 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 I'm I'm concerned about the the you know now as we emerge from the triple crisis of of COVID nineteen, you know the recession associated with it, and then the civil unrest that was. Uh, that was sparked by George Floyd's murder, the divisions in our society, the vitriolic partisanship that we see. I, I fear that we are going to become so introspective, Alan, that we disengage from the world. And, and it really is America's engagement in not in Europe and across the Indo-Pacific region that gets more out of our allies, that builds their confidence uh, it, you know, in, in our alliance structures uh, and, and in our, our advancing and protecting our, our interests vis-a-vis two revisionist powers on the Eurasian landmass, China and, and Russia, for, for example. I think it's also very important for us to maintain, remain engaged in the Middle East, because when we don't, our countries in the region, they hedge. They hedge against a U.S. withdrawal, and, and they, they tend to accommodate Russia, for, for example. Uh, so so I, I think that, that it's, I'm not arguing for a massive amount of you know, troops and military efforts, but we have to sustain our commitment to NATO. We should sustain our commitment on the on the Korean Peninsula and, and to Japan and with our naval efforts in the uh, across the Indo-Pacific region, uh, because it is those efforts that result in deterrence by denial, did not, um, d- convincing our potential enemies that they can't accomplish their objectives through the use of, of force or, or other forms of intimidation. What I describe in the book is Russian new generation warfare, for for example. But but also I think it is right. It is right to demand more from our allies at the same time, more burden share. I think in particular, Germany has to step up uh, and, and has been lagging behind in terms of our collective defense capabilities, uh, as well as, as, as giving Russia coercive power over its economy with this Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline, for example. So, so I, we can demand more if we, if we remain committed. And then, and then I think it's also very important for us to recognize the broad competition uh, with China, and we all have to act together on China. China will play us off against each other, Alan. You know, if we, if we impose some costs on China economically, they'll just go to the EU, the European Union, to make up for it, or to Japan. If those three economies, the European Union plus now the UK, and Japan and the U- US work together, it's going to be very difficult uh, for, for China to advance its interests. And if, for example, it's, its effort to establish the standards for, for data, uh, in the emer- and, and, and for the emerging data economy. You talk about in the book this um, need, and you just expressed it, and you explained why it's important to have a close working relationship with our allies. Before the lockdown, I had an opportunity to meet with one of Boris Johnson, the UK part. Prime Minister's closest uh, advisors. And I found it kind of incredible, and this was in January of this year, I found it incredible what needed to be said to try to get the British not to get into bed with Huawei, the, um, the, the Chinese firm, basically not to turn over, give the opportunity for this Chinese firm 
to um, to to have a lot of say over the internet in the UK. To me, it was kind of mind-boggling. Something that, to me, again, uh, I'm just a layman. To me, it just seemed crazy that yeah. you would turn over to an enemy of the UK, an enemy of the free world, this power. Are you at times also amazed of how some obvious uh, policy prescriptions are not taken by yeah. our allies and ourselves? <laughs> right, right, Alan, I, I think it's avarice, right? I mean, a lot of people have made a lot of money in China and, and China is very good at co-opting elites, right? China's influence strategy, really going back to the 90s at least, was co-opt elites in the West and dominate the narrative. Now they're becoming actually even more sophisticated and starting to take some pages out of, out of Russia's book on, on influence. But the, the first study that really, that really pulled the curtain back on how China was, was engaged in this kind of sustained influence campaigns uh, in the West, to, to cultivate witting and especially unwitting agents so they could advance their interests. Uh, was it done in Australia by uh, an investigative journalist named John Garneau. It's a brilliant study. Uh, we did one here at the Hoover Institution at Stanford as well that, that, uh, that, that, that is excellent uh, as well. Some, some real uh, China experts who, who are very disappointed because <laughs> they were hopeful for China. This is, this is the great uh, author of, of, um, of, of uh, the, 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 uh, the Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom, John Popper, for example, was on that, uh, was on that team. And, and it's really eye-opening because you see how the Chinese Communist Party has targeted us sector by sector, academia, think tanks, federal government, businesses, and local governments as well. And, and, um, but I think now China's overplayed its hand. I mean, I, you see public opinion shifting. Since that time in January when you were in the UK, the UK has banned Huawei. I mean, the simple question I think to ask, Alan, is it, do you really expect the Chinese Communist Party to treat your citizens better than they treat their own people? And if the answer to that is, of course not, then there's no way you should give them your communications infrastructure and access to all your, your sensitive data. I would like you just to briefly talk to me about, it's slightly off topics that we've been talking about, our relationship with Pakistan which uh, you addressed in the book. And it's frankly, it's a subject that is almost never publicly discussed, except when there's crisis. And um, you make a point that the United States was on a course to um, punish uh, economically Pakistan, to get them to change their ways. And then America, dropped that policy and you say in the book, I wish they had waited. Um, Pakistan has been at the center of so many problems that we have had to deal with in the Middle East. What is it about Pakistan? It, and there was also a recent, um, there was a, a recent report about how Pakistan is prepared to provide nuclear weapons to Saudi Arabia. I mean, we're dealing with a dang potentially dangerous country and certainly one that has 
human rights violations. I mean, a whole bunch of things. Why, why is it not, why is Pakistan not dealt with by American policy? Well, this, this is, again, a case of strategic narcissism, Alan. We always think that, hey, if, it, it must be our fault, right? Maybe we're just not treating them well enough, Alan. So we, we blame ourselves. The, 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 the one aspect of strategic narcissism that is particularly frustrating is that we actually blame ourselves for the most egregious actions of our adversaries. <laughs> and so, and so it, is, it, it is sort of our, our tendency, I mean, you know, the, the, the Shia at Ashura have nothing on us. We're very good at self-flagellation, Alan. <laughs> and so we fail to consider the, the nature of, of, of the Pakistani regime, which is dominated by the Pakistani army, which is dominated by a culture that, that, that sees, first of all, an Indian behind every tree and defines every... Uh, every aspect of its foreign policy by its competition within India, because that's that's the, the Pakistani army's reason for existence anyway, and justification uh, for existence. But the party, uh, that the army uh, has has used, Pakistan has used uh, terrorist organizations as an arm of their foreign policy since 1947, and and in so doing has created you know, a Frankenstein's monster there that that could uh, and has parts of it turned against them. And so the the the, uh, the the inner service intelligence, the intelligence arm of the of the you know, of the Pakistani army is not going to is not going to get is not going to give this up. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Pakistan is dangerous for a number of reasons. Uh, it perpetuates this this jihadist terrorist ecosystem uh, in, in 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 a very inaccessible, difficult to get to region. And in this ecosystem, these various groups from Lashkar Lashkar e Taiba. To uh, Tariqi Taliban, Pakistan, which is which is uh, which is hostile to the, the Pakistani state, uh, Al Qaeda uh, related groups, the Haqqani network, the Taliban. These groups all share people and resources. They have access to a lucrative lucrative uh, organized crime enterprise that involves all forms of illicit trafficking, mainly uh, mainly opium, but uh, but also semi precious gems and 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 uh, and timber even. And so they, they, they have resources, they have a safe haven support base, and they already want to kill our children, Alan, these people, right? So it is a very dangerous place. Now add on to it that this is a country with, with nuclear weapons. And, and you, can, you can see the danger potentially of these jihadist terrorists getting access to the most destructive weapons on earth. So I think that it is in Pakistan's interest for us to have a tough approach to, uh, to them. I mean, I, I mentioned it in the book that when I spoke with my counterparts, I would just paint the, the picture of, the, of their future. I said, your future is North Korea. You know, you're, you know you're, you'd be a pariah state with a single state sponsor, China. How does that look to you? That can't look good to you. And so I, I think that that approach is important, but we keep falling back into the trap. Alan, I've seen it so many times. And yet, where, where, where these, the, the Pakistani officers in the military, they're so charming. You know, they speak the Queen's English. They serve great scotch, right? And so you think, wow, they're just like us. And, and then they, what they do is they, they convince you, you're going to be the one. You're going to be the one that's going to convince me to change my behavior. And so they play to our egos, right? And then we think, oh, well, they, they really have just been misunderstood. It has been our fault based on the Pressler Amendment and the break off of relations and so forth. So the, the whole, they have this whole narrative. And it's almost like when you speak with, with a senior Pakistani official, you, you hit like the play button, you get the same, you get the same 
story uh, of history. And we just have to stop being, stop being so gullible. This is, this is serial uh, gullibility uh, of the highest order. Well, General McMaster, again, I want to thank you for sharing your very informative insights into the challenges that the United States of America faces and how to deal with them. Urge everyone to buy and read Battlegrounds by General McMaster. I also want to thank you for the service that you've done for this, for this country, for our country. And um, you are a historian by nature, I believe. I mean, you, like I said, your, dele your dereliction of duty book on the Vietnam War, I think is a must read as well. And, um, and now you're offering your insights to educators. And I agree with you. I think that every American should read this book. We will, as we promote this interview, we will, of course, have links so that people will be encouraged to make a purchase of the book, read the book. I also want to say that General McMaster is hosting at Hoover a series of interviews called Battlegrounds. And, um, and you could see him and um, there, um, go to the Hoover Institute. I'm sure there's a way of signing up for, for these interviews with world leaders, with people who will help us be an educated populace. And um, so I wish you all the best. I, um, I hope you stay well with the rest of the country. And once again, thanks for sitting for this interview. Alan, thank you for the privilege of being with you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.